Welcome, I'm Mark Beal, a past life regression therapist and trainer. If you're interested in having sessions or certification training, go to pastlifeawakeninginstitute.com for details. Welcome, Kendra. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Mark. So this is Kendra Savage. She's a licensed clinical social worker and therapist. She practices holistic and integrative psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, especially EMDR, and we'll find out what that is soon, uh, internal family systems and mind-body work like meditation. She works with issues including trauma and addictions. She has a master's degree from Rutgers University. She's been in clinical practice for four years and is now in New Jersey. Yet she's Southern Alabama born and was a professional opera singer. So you can find her profile. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You can find her profile at Psychology Today. Uh, so welcome, Kendra. Uh, good to see you. Yes. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm excited to be here. Great. And so that's a, a lot of uh, things to go through. We can find out about your healer's path, the kind of issues you work with, the kind of modalities you use, and the kind of study that you've done. So how in a, how would you describe in your own words and in a short form your, your own job title? Yeah, I think I am somebody who's working with individuals who are struggling on a daily basis with you know, functional problems. And I come alongside them, support them, help teach them, and also just help guide them with information and knowledge and wisdom. Um, in some ways, it's such a human thing, what I'm doing, you know, um, and then in other ways, there's a lot of science. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm interested to find out about the way you balance and use the scientific that you have. And then as we said, the holistic and integrative type methods. So by holistic and integrative, I presume that means you're using a, a variety of therapeutic modalities. So what are some of the primary ones? Yeah. So the first one that you mentioned, Mark, was EMDR. And I know this seems kind of elusive and even the title of it can be challenging. So it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a lot of words. And essentially it is um, taking painful past events that still feel really charged and overwhelming when you think about them, uh, revisiting them through the use of uh, bilateral movement, which is kind of the left and right movement of the body, either the eyes or the hands. And it allows a person to revisit past feelings and reevaluate them from the present moment. Um, and when a person is able to do that, then oftentimes there is a release of distress from the brain and body. And that offers a lot of release from overwhelm. And it's a wonderful way with which to address these functional issues that people are coming in with um, anxiety, depression. So that's kind of EMDR in a nutshell, but it's actually a really vast psychotherapy approach. And where it began long ago for just trauma back in the 1980s, when Francine Shapiro first stumbled upon this wonderful technique, um, it's really uh, just adapted over time and is now being used to treat everything from anxiety to um, OCD, uh, trauma, you know, proper trauma with big T, uh, to little t trauma, neglect, I mean, anything you can imagine. So that's really kind of the framework with which I'm viewing most of the way I interact with clients. Okay, so um, how, how, sorry, how yeah. does that sit in the world of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis? Is it a subset of it or? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I still work with a psychoanalytic supervisor weekly because I think EMDR found it, it has its roots in psychoanalysis, which is really that everything going on in your present that is distressing or causing overwhelm is based and rooted in the subconscious um, kind of undercurrent. And that's really what psychoanalysis is all about. And so kind of doing that dance between what's happening in the present moment, how is it being impacted by past subconscious material that I may or may not be in awareness of? Um, Yeah, so I think those things are completely linked and really one birthed the other. And so there's an element there where you're going back and reprocessing uh, events from the past. And so a lot of the people watching this, uh, the Past Life Regression Institute podcast, will have an, uh, have a hypnotherapy background. And so it does sound like, uh, and I read actually an article online where uh, it was mentioned that uh, there's, there are similarities when between EMDR and hypnotherapy and that both attempt to bypass the conscious mind to elicit subconscious suppressed memories and feelings. So yeah. uh, is that right? And what, how would you compare it or, or see EMDR in relation to things like hypnotherapy? The commonalities? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're really sister therapies and they work um, in a really similar realm. So anytime we're dealing with the subconscious, it's such a vast arena. And EMDR to me is kind of hypnotherapy light. Um, I don't know if everyone out there listening to this would agree with me, Um, but it's really giving the client a lot more um, dual attention in their conscious mind. So when they flirt with this, their time in the subconscious, um, there's a little bit more control, there's a lot more cognition, and there's more guidance. So it's kind of a way to get introduced to the subconscious realm without, um, with a little bit, I, I would say more control and more guidance um, okay. uh, as to where you're going and a little bit more kind of cognitive information being put in between. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in hypnotherapy, we traditionally regress to a cause and we might ask fairly general statements and find out where the subconscious takes us. And we might be a little bit surprised by that. So we may not know what the causative or traumatizing events are going into hypnotherapy. Uh, In EMDR, there's the more controlled cognitive elements. Is it like you, you know what you're going, going into and, and what you're going to address? That's a great question. I mean, similarly to hypnotherapy in the way that I've experienced it, Mark, through your institute, um, before you go in, there has to be an agreement on what the problem is. So we have to know why we're going in to the subconscious. We really want to have a firm idea about what that is. And then we want to know and be in agreement as to what the desired outcome might be most of the time. So that way we know what the purpose and outcome of our work will you know, what we want it to potentially be. It has to be something that is realistic, something that is more, you know, you know, it's taking in the complexities of life. Um, And so those two things are really essential because once you go into the process, like you said, EMDR is very similar to hypnotherapy in the sister modality way in that you don't know where the subconscious is going to take you. In fact, I may think I know based on the the client's history, the client may think they know based on, oh, this memory was really painful for me, but their subconscious has a totally different agenda. And the next thing we know, we're in their, you know, grandfather's basement, uh, you know, piddling around in the dirt somewhere. And they're going, how the heck did we get here? Um, And 
their body is all of a sudden revealing to them, wow, there's this really important negative belief that got stored at this moment in this time that has to do with my presenting issue. So very similar in many ways. Yeah, and the way that you reprocess the feelings, uh, so it's eye movement desensitization. So you're revisiting uh, the the memories. Do, is, do you even make a distinction between uh, recalling, reliving yeah, you know, we don't usually say reliving because there's this idea that you're not going back into the past as who you were then. So the only reason why a person even steps into my office and is looking to do EMDR is that there's a part of their subconscious that is ready now that they're not having to survive that event anymore that is safe enough now to revisit it from where they are today, which is usually safe enough to go back and to reevaluate. Re and so they're bringing that present wise part of them with them now. And so we call it reprocessing because you're going back with your wise, mature self and you're taking that adult part with you. And that adult part is going to go back with the part that had to experience that past event and now they're together. And so that's a really big distinction. We call it dual attention. Yep. You know, you're part in the past, but you're part in the present. And we're really working this uh, dual attention at any given moment and making awareness, bringing attention to it, uh, depending on a client's need. Yeah, well, that that's really uh, a powerful thing to hear because I think some uh, potential clients may think, I don't want to do trauma therapy because I don't want to relive my traumas. Yes. And, and some clinicians even might say, regression therapies are dangerous because you're going to make people relive their traumas and re-traumatize them. Sure, and so I, what, and absolutely. So what, yeah. Yeah, so what would you say to that? Well, first of all, I'd say, I think what makes a really seasoned clinician is number one, really noticing that your client is coming in with strategies on how they've survived their life, um, whether that's they've pushed too hard or they've lived in avoidance. And so we're taking those things into account and we're tailoring the work based on their needs. And so for someone who may push a little too hard, you know, we're not just going to fly into EMDR and drive it home, you know, and then they're just going to flood themselves and re-traumatize themselves. We're really taking into account, oh, that's how they've survived. So we need to be cognizant that this work needs to be a little bit more paced. So pacing is going to be a healing experience for this client. So that's number one. Yep. And number two, I really believe that if clients are coming in looking for this work, that there is a part of them that is already established and ready. And to me, that's happened long before they've met me. And I think that's the part of the clinician that needs to be able to trust the client that they can manage. They're living with their trauma every day, whether we do this work or not. Yep. So they're not doing it alone. They're in a safe enough space. They've sought me out and I've, I'm taking all those things into account. And so I'm the one who's leading, stepping out into that kind of subconscious unknown. And, you know, their brain and body's not going to do anything it doesn't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing I've known and realized that they have many protective measures in place that have kept their life together. Yeah. And so if it's really not ready, there's nothing I, as a clinician, am going to do that's going to make their brain and body do something that it really doesn't want to. Yeah. wasn't ready for 
Yeah, I think any of those objections to maybe, a re so it is re really recalling and reviewing, resensitizing, but not reliving. And so that, you know, any of the objections, you know, you may re-traumatize them or I may be traumatized while well, you're already traumatized, you know, but you're burying it and, and suffering from it. Yeah. And, and the idea that, uh, you know, if you go back to that moment, you'll just, it'll just be the same all over again. That, that yeah. implies that, you know, nothing's changed in the intermediary time and, and a, a ton has changed. And, That's right. And and it also implies that people don't have resources in order to overcome problems. That's right. hundred percent. So yeah, for a clinician to to raise that as an objection to regression to me is, you know, really uh, odd. But uh, one thing though can be is if you're going back and you're doing post-trauma work uh, or dealing with traumas, how do you, is there a certain amount of time that needs to pass so that you can uh, recall something that's in the past? and then work with it? Or what about people that are on ongoing traumatic situations? Yeah, that's a great question. So when a person comes in, I always am keeping my ears to the ground to what door they're ready to walk through. Um, because most people who have lived or had complex trauma, uh, so their life has had lots of little events or even some major events, you know, it's kind of a gnarly web and their survival strategies have created their own gnarly web of trauma experiences. And so we're really gonna take our time in that preparatory phase to just listen. What is the door with which they're ready to walk through? Typically there's one presenting issue that they're saying, okay, I wanna work here. It may not be the door, but their brain and body is gonna let us know um, what door is available to us. Where are they ready to say, okay, this is a problem. I see it clearly clear enough and I'm ready to work there because this is how I want to feel and we're in agreement. So that to me is how we know what doors we're ready to walk through together and to do EMDR together. Um, and it doesn't have to be all the doors, right? Complex trauma treatment can be a long process. So if there's one door ready, my job is to know what one door or a couple of doors are available. We begin to walk through them and slowly the more doors we walk through, the less overwhelmed they become. And then it's kind of a cascading effect over time. Um, and then the more awareness and capacity they have to walk through bigger doors or more complicated doors. So if someone's walking in for treatment, I assume we have at least one door <laughs> um, or we can prepare to get through a door. Okay, you talked about the big T and the little T and distinctions and kind of traumas. So is that, would that come in? You might start off uh, working with the little T, uh, have success with that and then move into the big T or something like that? Yeah, sure. Every client is really different. So some clients are just ready and they're really aware of what their past issues are. Um, they're more emotionally uh, online, I would say. Um, the little T's are kind of in hiding. So sometimes they're not the easiest doors to walk through. And because it is a web, I don't know, um, sometimes the bigger T's are easier to work with because they're more obvious. Right. I guess the little, the little T's could possibly be the kind of more subtle but more ongoing things. Yeah. So but, a lot of times um, emotional neglect right. is a big little T that I see and it kind of rears its head in so many different presentations. And I think this also has a lot to do with our generation, right? Like what we would consider a little T wasn't even a T 
<laughs> you know, 50 years ago, 20, right. 30 years ago. And for some in certain areas of the world still isn't even a tea. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is really all about, I think just the, the luxury, the, the privilege of certain our certain generation and where we live that we can consider these things little tea or big tea. Yeah. I'd like to get into, you know, what exactly do we mean by trauma? And you've raised a whole bunch of points. So I've got a bunch of questions. I'm just trying to figure through which one, how to go through them in order. Um, But we often think of trauma as in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And people often think of things like, uh, you know, uh, being in the military, being in Iraq or something. And then you have traumatic stress from that. And then you might come back and have issues with uh, addiction, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, suicide, this kind of thing. Uh, But, you know, Trauma isn't limited to people uh, who've suffered those uh, gross, obvious traumas. And so I'm because, you know, we see high rates in the general population of anxiety, depression, substance abuse, and suicide. And then there's little T. And so that comes to this whole question of what really qualifies as trauma. Yeah. Um, there's a wonderful quote by Gabor Mate where I'm going to, I don't know how to quote it specifically, but his words would say, trauma is not the event itself. Trauma is how your body experiences, interprets, and understands the event. And yeah. so with that definition, trauma can literally be anything. And trauma is inevitable. You know, it's not this thing that we're going to be able to avoid. Um, so to me, any person could come in and find a benefit from trauma treatment because your brain and body, everyone's brain and body has experienced uh, things we can't understand, moments where we didn't have any assistance or help to interpret painful events and make sense of them in a way that's going to be best for our brain and body. And because we live in a world where we are not just an individual, we live in a collective, we've had to deny our needs for others. And so when I think about what trauma is, it's the ways in which we've had to deny our own needs and wants. Um, and also the misinterpretation of emotional data that either causes us to believe things that aren't true about ourselves or things that aren't necessarily true about the world or life itself. Okay. So, so trauma, what it is, it's uh, how you process it. It's not the event and the events itself. You did raise a, a point there about the relativity of trauma. What may have been, you know, we call, it wouldn't have been called a trauma in the past, but it is now because, you know, in, in many ways our lives are improved uh, we had traumatic things like, you know, animal attacks or starvation. <laughs> there can be that question, okay, I have traumas that can be in various degrees and it can affect the general population. Then one question can be, you know, I, there's money, time, effort involved in dealing with that kind of trauma and going through treatment for it. Like, uh, why? What's the motivation for people to do it? And and I think at, at, at a certain level, you know, just because you're not in the third world suffering starvation, war, famine, corruption... Uh, that it doesn't diminish the level of suffering that someone can have sitting in a nice house, you know, with all the food that they need and are basically safe. And so what, what are your views about what motivates people to to recognize that there is some trauma there and the importance of uh, the suffering that they experience is real and and is uh, and it's is valuable to, to work through that? 
Yeah. Um, typically when I meet individuals, uh, a common thing I hear is I'm feeling so distressed, but I shouldn't be. Right. So my life is telling me that things are okay, but my body and mind are telling me things are really not okay. And I don't know why I just, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest motivators um, that I hear in the outpatient work here in New Jersey that I do with the population I work with, which is mainly adults. Yeah. Um, there's just that co- th- that dissonance inside that internal dissonance. Um, so when things get uncomfortable enough in your brain and body, that's the biggest motivator. And I think we're in a in a generation right now where people are really they're hearing their brain and body more. We just have more access. We're not, like you said, we're not running from the bear anymore. Um, you know, we're safe enough now to hear the call of our brain and body. And we're hearing that internal dissonance and therefore it feels louder. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so I think there's a really uh, important point there about even the evolution of humanity. Cause yeah. I've, Right now, I'm in the third world. I've lived and worked in India uh, and uh, in places where I lived in a nice suburb, admittedly, but a couple of kilometers in either direction, things get pretty pretty real and pretty medieval pretty quickly. And it really does, uh, a lot of people have that cultural uh, culture shock uh, going there. And, but, and I think we're aware now of the privilege that we have being in our Western world or comfortable, but we still feel distressed. And I actually, I traveled in Africa and I observed the, the poverty and lack and connection and the happiness and joy. And I came back to London where I was working and absor- observed the affluence and wealth and misery and sadness of people going off into the tube in their thousand pound suits, looking really uh, unhappy. And that sort of was a big part of my healer's path. And so this idea that those people on the tube in London or New York can be thinking, I'm distressed and sad, but I shouldn't be. I've got it better than, you know, most of the world. It doesn't make sense that I'm sad. Whereas for me, that was a big awakening to realize, you know, you don't really got to, uh, you know, your, your stress and suffering is pretty real. And the isolation and disconnection and, you know, all of the, the minor sufferings, we're safe and, and wealthy and everything, but you know, uh, the, the, the sufferings that we feel are real and, and, we, and, and the, whatever causes are there, uh, uh, they, don't nest, they may not make sense, but it's pretty useful to try and make sense of them and to deal with them. Yeah. So what are your views on that kind of, have you had that, uh, similar experiences or thoughts? Oh, Mark, there's so many thoughts and feelings coming up as you're saying this. I mean, I've had these thoughts so many times. I mean, so when you're connected to just the process of life, right? Like, so survival, survival is where you're just right in the thick of life itself. And there's almost a simplicity to it, isn't there? Like what you described when you're in a third world country, there's, there's a limited value of life in the way that we might see it in, uh, you know, America or, you know, uh, a higher, you know, economic, socioeconomic status um, where, you know, we're so conscientious that we're almost unable to connect to the, to life and the process of life. And so on one hand, there's that simplicity when you're in survival. And yet when you slow down, and I think that's what's been happening, we're slowing down, we're disconnecting from that process. There's a lot of discord that begins to happen in the brain and body where we think we're not a part of it somehow. And so this work 
trauma treatment or EMDR, the way in which I do EMDR and integrate holistically is how do we come back to the process of life? And I think the reason why people are going through this evolution of survival, conscientiousness, conscious awakening, healing, is that we open kind of the, the voice of our spirit. And so it gives us another layer of evolution, but it's, we're certainly going to go through the ringer getting there, like every, any evolutionary process. And it's not happening in every uh, area around the world, but for those of us who are able to experience it, it's another part of self that opens another part of the evolutionary process that opens and another part of us that's able to have expression in the world. So it's worth it, I think, but <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, some really interesting points. So the, in terms of, you know, going through the ringer, even though we're having relatively more subtle traumas and yet, and there's a, a saying that, you know, the, 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 the worst trauma that you have maybe. So even I can talk about, you know, people in Africa, I went to Rwanda and you know, there was massacres there. I went in a few years after the massacres in the late nineties and, you know, you can't deny that there's, you know, gross traumas there. And yet the ability of humans to be able to handle that and move on is impressive not to minimize or, uh, uh, any of their, you know, the events they went through. Uh, but the point being that the worst trauma that anyone's experienced in their life relative to another person may not be, uh, you know, but it's still the worst they've had. Yes. So there's a big difference between experiencing a trauma, um, which our brain and body is uniquely designed for. Okay. We are built as humans to endure unspeakable terror and suffering. Um, it's just unimaginable what we can survive and continue to thrive in. Right. Um, so there's a difference between walking through experiencing that firsthand versus your conscious awakening moment, which is where you're observing yourself going through those events yep. from a different perspective, which to me is where the healing process comes in and it creates that next dimension within a person. And so having to witness yourself going through atrocities and be with yourself as you look at a past memory with what your brain and body had to experience as if you were watching the movie of your own life um, from a different perspective, that to me is where healing happens. Right. And so not everyone is going to get to that place in this lifetime and that's yep. perfectly fine. Um, but for those who are seeking that and that's where they're going to go in this life, I mean, the healing that comes from being able to just feel the emotional flood and, and rush and the energy that comes from being able to create that dimension, that to me is the work that I'm doing. And so, you know, and I wonder, Mark, about the work you're doing also. We mentioned at the beginning, you do EMDR and you also do mind-body work like meditation. What you're saying there is really, I think, moving us to this, the, the meditation part. I think that's a really important distinction and witnessing is a big part of a meditative practice. So is, is you do, you do practice meditation in your practice and is witnessing part of the meditation practices you see it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's something meditative about all the body work that I do and I practice meditation a lot myself. I think 
just creating that witness. You use the word witness in meditation, the word observing part. So the part of us that can neutrally, in a more neutral way, just be present for whatever's happening in our life. And it's kind of an internal resource that we have. And it allows us to look at what we're going through without judgment. So that's the other part of meditative practice that is, you know, so you need the observer and that observer needs to be without judgment. So that, we can look at anything going on. That That is so huge. And that is something I do notice as you go through steps of taking people back through the past experiences, and even the part where you're integrating as the, the journey goes uh, afterwards, but uh, particularly uh, when people witness themselves going through traumas, it's completely different to that. That comes back to that distinction between reliving it yeah. and you're not reliving it. And you're not, uh, by witnessing it, you're not identifying with the pain. Yeah. Uh, and, and it creates that, that level of distance that, and by witnessing it, you know, who's witnessing it? Like I felt the pain and I was scared and angry but the witnessing part does become like a subconscious or, and then we get into a super conscious. You talked That's about, right. you know, the, the, the highest wisdom. So the highest wisdom can transcend, you know, uh, the identity and can be uh, a wise part beyond the, the cognitive or the, the, the really strictly physical or emotional part. And it can bring in a spiritual wisdom, which is what can start coming through naturally in meditation as well. So does that, is that, what do you think? Does that resonate or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really a conversation point, I think, across disciplines, you know, the idea that there is something beyond our mind that is propelling our evolution and our growth as a species. And the word consciousness, you know, your spiritual wisdom in deep intelligence, whatever you want to call it, you know, energy, you know, physics has its own language for understanding these things. But um, anytime you're, I've worked with clients doing this work, they will begin to tap into that resource. And that really, I think, is the, the main goal, um, really helping people prepare for this resource, helping them begin to build the skill of how to find it, how to return to it. And then a lot of the body work and meditation I do is helping people continually gain access to that resource. So it gets easier and easier for them to find their way back to it. Yeah. And some other points you mentioned there as well. So we can be witnessing and uh, not identifying with the pain, but we can also, uh, and also you mentioned being non-judgmental and people can judge, well, I've got little T trauma. My grandparents or my parents, you know, if you're a, a Zuma or whatever they're called, the, the, the Z, the younger generation, uh, they, you know, they can get some flack for being like overly sensitive. Uh, but they also do mention, and then going through the ringer because of that, I think, and but that does remind me of like the hierarchy of needs. And so we can talk about the third world or our previous generations where they were really concerned about you know, populating and creating civilization and spreading civilization and uh, and looking after the hierarchy of needs, having safety, having a secure food source, and they're having some form of abundance, which they got, and then they're happy with that. But now we've got all of that. There's a point where we get to the top of the tree and it's more towards self-actualization yeah. And so then more subtle things can still create the same level of, uh, of trauma or pain or suffering. And you did mention them going through the ringer. And so despite the fact that, you know, on, on some levels, the lower part of the hierarchy, things are taken care of, 
uh, it, it's not that doesn't uh, and people may try and trivialize uh, the the upper part of it, but it is all part of self-actualization, which is part of a conscious awakening and a healing process. So it may seem more subtle, but it still does require healing. It's still valid. It can't be really trivialized. And the ultimate purpose of it is, is for this conscious awakening. Oh, yes. And I would say it's, I mean, for those who may not have gone through that, I feel like the hierarchy starts all over again. <laughs> it doesn't actually okay. even feel like it's smaller. It just feels okay. like another triangle, you know, to me, the, the internal self-actualization process is its own frontier. It is its own huge process with which people are going through. And, you know, judgment to me, I'm beginning to realize is that emotional data that we just don't understand something yet. And we want to interpret and try to find an understanding for it, which I think is a, just a, you know, it's a human characteristic. We don't, we dislike not understanding something and judgment gives us a quick way with which to interpret information that we haven't fully felt. Yeah. And so the more people sit and witness fully feeling their own experience from a third position, judgment inevitably distances because they now begin to see things from a different perspective. And that's really what releases the chains of judgment over time. And the more experiences people have, feeling the emotional experience with themselves, the yeah. more they can feel it with others over time. Yeah, I see this uh, a lot. I see it with my clients and I see it in society where people have very firm, uh, they have make judgments about things being good or bad. And they have yeah. a great deal of certainty that they're right in calling other people wrong and that they're good and the other ones are bad. And for me, and but what I see as a consequence of that is a lot of pain and suffering caused for themselves. Yes. And I think one way past that is knowing that you don't know. The judgment that you have that I'm good and I'm right and they're wrong and they're bad is has, uh, has great problems. And the greatest problems it has is for that person's own uh, own peace and clarity and mental well-being. Yeah, Are you absolutely. saying something like that? Oh, yes. In fact, this really defines so much of that preparatory phase I spend with clients, you know, which is just coming in with a neutral state, even allowing people to experience what neutrality feels like enough. You know, I'm not a perfect neutral slate, but neutral enough. So that way clients can begin to notice, wow, there's no judgment here in the way that I might feel it, even just experiencing it for the first time in an external way. So they can begin to identify, mentalize, what does that feel like inside? And then, like you said, as it, as it begins to progress, it can just have amazing ripple effects um, because there are so many things that even from where I'm sitting, I do not understand about the world, about humanity, about our species, about where we're headed. Yeah. Um, and judgment is really that quick way to just find relief you know in a way it's a compulsive behavior to explain the unknown um, so in some ways it's very necessary for many right now and hopefully we'll develop ways of better ways of uh, dealing with not knowing yeah Okay. And so sometimes I see that that kind of judgment, it starts off as people being very judgmental towards other people, but seeing it as some kind of virtue. And once they see through that, then they become judgmental of themselves. 
of how could I be so critical of others? So implicit with that judgment uh, is that, you know, we're judging others as right or wrong, but then we're trying to project onto them or, or give a sense of shame. Uh, and so, uh, so what, yeah, what is that, what is that, that shame uh, element? Is that something that you see? Oh yeah. I mean, shame is like the word um, we're carrying it around in our bodies. It feels like a black hole going through our chest. Um, it's a way in which we've interpreted how we show up in the world. It's how we see other people around us. It's that kind of black and white feeling that it, it to me, it's a signal that somebody has not been given the opportunity to be curious about things around them or themselves. Um, whether that has to do with their family of origin, their society, or the generation they grew up in. And so they've really found a way to interpret the world. And shame is a great way, right? Because it's so harsh, concrete, black and white. It's an extreme, um, it's an easy way with which, or easy, you know, it's an easy way with which we can understand the external world at a great internal cost. Okay. Um, so do you mean that, that the shame that people feel in themselves or, do, or, or the shame that people then would attempt, would attempt to put on other people uh, that they're judging and, and casting blame and shaming? You don't find one without the other. Right. So whatever's going on in the internal landscape, and this takes me back to the IFS, the internal family systems, however you're dealing with your internal self is how you're dealing with the external world, whether you're speaking it or not. So if you're shaming yourself, then you're judging externally in some way um, you're finding relief by feeling better than um, you know there's kind of that transactional experience happening externally yeah and even just the idea of uh, you know we've got trauma and we've got suffering and i think there's an and we'll come back to this you mentioned people going through the ringer and i think there's a there's an element of trauma that everybody experiences you said there's an element of suffering uh, or uh, which is implicit in the human experience and that we can then self-actualize and go beyond uh, but, and there's an element of, uh, you know, judging where we need to assess if people are doing abhorrent behaviors, then they do need to be uh, judged in a legal sense and uh, found accountable for their actions and punished within the judicial system. Uh, and if well, what we've seen recently is that, you know, failings of the judicial system, people getting away with it, so then it becomes a public shaming, which also serves a purpose so that then it does, it's functional that it stops that kind of behavior. But then we get into excess suffering, which can be that people use shame as a mechanism uh, uh, excessively uh, without uh, any sort of form of uh, judicial process or due process. And they do so in a way where a lot of the energy is sent towards the people they're attempting to shame. But there's so much sort of anger and vitriol behind it that, as the Buddha said, you know, one that has holds anger burns themselves more than they will burn the ones that they tempt to throw anger or shame at. So, yeah. yeah, we're seeing this across the board, right? Like if we're looking politically, we're going to see this on both sides of the aisle. If we're looking religiously, we're going to see this in, in many of the factions, um, even within the healing world, you know, there's a lot of judgment on people who can't self-actualize. Um, and it's that to me, it's such a signal that, someone has not yet done the work within themselves for whatever reason, good or bad, right? We wouldn't put a judgment on that us, um, but that they haven't been able to make space for complexity. Um, we are living in a really complex world. 
And what motivates a thing I've realized over time, and I'm going to continue to realize and learn more about over time, is that people don't waste energy. So when people are doing a thing, there's typically a really good reason why they're doing it and they're motivated to do it. And it's the lack is in our ability to understand that reason and to make sense of it. And so, you know, in relationship, we're always trying to understand others without really understanding. Um, and when we realize just how complex it is to understand another person and their experience, which is what I get the pleasure of learning how to do all day, um, it's actually really complicated. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a lot of complicated skill. And I'm hoping in this generation and, and even in generations previous that have opened up doors for me to be where I am today and where hopefully I'll open doors for people in another uh, generation ahead of me is to just send that skill of curiosity and complexity. Yeah. Is that something you're seeing in your professional life? Are you seeing judgment towards, you know, your holistic integrative approach? Yeah, of course. I mean, here in New Jersey, there's a really strong group of cognitive behavioral therapists um, of really traditional golden standard ways of, of helping people typically more solution focused, more cognitive based. So they have to do a lot with thinking your way out of problems. Um, and I was pretty well established and indoctrinated in school. And, and that's fine. You know, it was what it was. Um, even in the addictions training that I did, there's really this, you know, kind of entrenched idea um, that people can choose to not do things based on just sheer thinking and will. Um, and I think, you know, I wonder what you think too, Mark, but at some point I realized, wow, this just isn't working. <laughs> and, um, and if it's not working, then I, you know, I think, okay, if this would work, it should work. And if it's not working, then clearly this isn't the answer. And that's what opened the doors for me and, and some really brave people who were asking questions and getting curious and saying, oh, wow, no, that's working or that's working. Let's, let's go through those doors. Let's follow those trails. And then, um, and to me, that's where I just felt my chest, like, you know, my soul was like, yeah, um, just some really beautiful things there. Okay, so we've talked about the conscious mind and bypassing getting to the subconscious and, uh, you know, the evolution of, uh, you know, society, how things move on and become more subtle. And then we get into the superconscious mind, hypnotherapy or aggression to things in this life. And then this is where we can take another step further away from the, you know, traditional scientific model. So I'm the Past Life Awakening Institute. So what are your thoughts towards modalities like past life progression? Yeah, Um the clients I work with inevitably, if they continue in their treatment and they slowly begin to awaken consciously, they gain that observing position. Um, they're able to really allow themselves to feel and experience emotional data in real time. So they can feel what they're feeling in any given moment. They're allowing themselves to feel it, experience it, integrate it, process it, gain the wisdom. Then their, their internal voice is awakening to me the emotional feelings that people feel at any given moment is the voice of their internal wisdom. And, you know, one way in which I've learned to understand that for myself as a student, not as a professional, is that there is a deep wisdom within us, you know, a deep connection to the superconscious, a deep um, 
a deep wisdom that is trying to help us grow and evolve and learn in this life. And, um, and so as I began to gain access to that, and I imagine my clients also, as they gain access to that understanding, that information, they're just going to continue to evolve and, and, and move along. Right. And the spiritual awakening to me is the next phase, um, which says there are things that EMDR, IFS can deal with in this lifetime, but there still may be emotional blocks, issues that are not resolving through our work together um, that may have to do with something beyond uh, time and space, right? So EMDR, IFS, because it is a shift in consciousness that is not as intense as hypnotherapy, we do get blocked by time and, um, and by space. And so to me, that would be where a wonderful referral would happen to someone like you, Mark, where you know, you would be able to explore that next phase of healing for individuals. Um, yeah. Right. Well, that's, so I'm not, uh, you're, you are a, a licensed uh, psychologist and, but I, and I'm not, uh, but, and so I don't work with clinically diagnosed issues, uh, but in this life uh, necessarily, or, you know, uh, through hypnotherapy, it's still really, it's not, uh, it's still focusing really on subconscious issues. Uh, and or or past life regression spiritual issues. So I have that mandate, uh, but and they they are then inherently more subtle, little traumas, you know. So the whole idea that people need past life regression therapy now, it's like, well, you know, don't don't we have enough problems in this life? Yes. And once you've gone to people like Kandra and and uh, dealt with all of those, uh, you may find some of the that you've cleared away so much that things as subtle as past life traumas can come up. And then they may be, you know, relatively small and not necessarily be dealt with you know, in your own past or in these past decades, but does come up now as, uh, as a relatively small trauma, but the biggest one you've got. Hence, it's now made its way to the front of the line. That's uh, right. There's a cue. There's a healing cue. And it's been, it's been uh, collecting your entire life and it's just waiting. And your body has the deep wisdom of knowing which one should should come first and which one should come next. And so absolutely. So absolutely. how how do you see in your practice when you might do a referral to past life regression? Do, you, do people even spontaneously have things come up or or do you do you have a sense through some other way? Yeah. Um, well this was just happening recently. So a client that we had explored um, a certain body sensation and, and um, present trigger. And we had explored it several on several occasions. And every time we would explore it, um, the way in which they might define it is, well, I just can't get there. There's a block there. And to me, of course, you know, my client might then say, oh, well, that's my fault. Something's wrong with me, right? So that's their, their survival strategy. But over time, as we begin to take in the complexity and realize, well, there are so many other factors here. Um, what if it's actually the wall of time? that's blocking you from getting there. And EMDR, while it does shift consciousness, it doesn't do it in as deep a way as hypnotherapy. It doesn't explore beyond that wall. Um, would you be willing to consider, right, that wonderful question, that it's actually something beyond this life? And when I broach those subjects with clients, it's always carefully, because again, there's no judgment on my end about what spiritual modality or not that you aspire to. Um, and when we get to a place where we can ask those questions, then if that's meaningful for that client, then a referral is a wonderful way 
with which they can continue to take that issue specifically or other issues that are coming up that we're not able to find a resolution for. Um, instead of saying, wow, I'm a terrible therapist. Um, wow, she's a terrible client, you know? Um, no, there are really limitations to the work I do. Um, and there are resources beyond me. Sure. I think, I mean, there are limitations to everything and then nothing's complete in itself. So I'll, I'll also I'll meet with people. And if I think it's mainly a cognitive issue and you need to figure out, uh, you know, some, some this life psychological things, go see a uh, psychologist first. I see myself really as a therapist of last resort. And I really prefer people to have done as much possible work and, and, and uh, so that they checked off every other possible thing. So the only thing that makes any sense is the thing that doesn't make any sense, which is past lives. sure absolutely you've done some of my online sessions like in between lives regression and uh, we even had uh, sessions together for past life regression so that so uh, so that's a way in which you've experienced it so can you tell us a bit about your experience with uh, your own past lives or past life regression therapy yeah um after i did a lot of extensive like um work on my present trauma in this life there were still a couple of issues that would resurface and patterns that it just felt wouldn't resolve in the, in the way that they had with my present life trauma work. And um, when I began to explore past lives online, I was really amazed how similarly it reminded me of meditation. So the state was very similar, but the information coming up from my subconscious was really available, vivid, um, interesting, making sense to me in many ways and and just available. So it was like meeting another part of myself and I had met many parts of myself up to that time. So this just felt like, oh, this is a familiar feeling. I know what this feels like. And yet it's like a whole nother part of myself. Um, And so when I started doing work with you, there were some very specific things that I wanted to seek resolution for. And the way in which you operate reminded me so much of my present trauma healing. So it almost felt like a very similar um, way and just, you know, going into a deeper place and the resolutions were so impactful and meaningful in a similar way to my present trauma healing was Um, it didn't actually feel um, so different. Um, It's just, the information was coming from a very new part of me or a part that I had been just recently beginning to develop, which is that spiritual and deep intellectual wisdom within the brain and body. Yeah. Interesting. I'm I'm glad you felt that way. Even as you're describing uh, EMDR, uh, so many of the principles and ideas, it's something I've not trained in. I know a little bit about EFT, but so not that much, but uh, everything that you're saying about recalling it, uh, reprocessing it, bringing in resources. That's all things that we do in past life regression. And then there's extra levels of narrative. What was it like for you to recall, you know, there are people I know in this life, and then I can recall them incarnated in a different body in a different role in a past life and to make those connections so that it's not something you do just know, like, who was I, but it really does connect to presenting issues that are relevant to the way that we're feeling and operating in the world. What was it like for you to, to get those narratives, even the suspension of disbelief or the, you know, that you, did you take it literally or not? Or how was your experience with that kind of narrative? Yeah, I mean, it's almost magical. I've heard EMDR described that way also, like it's magic. 
Um, because when you hear that, when you get that sub subconscious download of information, it's just like, where the heck is this coming from? It's coming from me. So that's one thing that drew me to EMDR. One thing that drew me to, to hypnotherapy past life regression is that all the deep wisdom is coming from within. Um, and so that was really amazing. And then it also makes me think of the word complexity and perspective, because when you can see how you've behaved in ways that may make you very upset and frustrated and also ways that you think, wow, I really endured that. You're having to take in from that observer position, all of that new information of experience beyond just this life. And it's so vast and yet it's so specific. And there's something your subconscious wants you to understand about those moments and events that have given you, again, those underlying subconscious interpretations that may or may not be working for you anymore. And so it wants you just like the way we would update our iPhone, you know, to a new version, our subconscious at some point says it's time for you to update. And it wants you, you know, I feel like it's drawing you in to give you that new information, that new interpretation. It's expanding the complexity again. Yep. Okay. Now we have the technology <laughs> to expand what we can understand. Um, and it's almost like a gift. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that really comes back to what we we're talking about before. I think people really suffer when they judge other people as being wrong and bad and themselves as good. But the real, real issue is the certainty with which they feel that they can judge them and how yeah. certain they are that they're wrong. And this expanding narrative is so useful because what we often find is that things even out over time. And it may be in this life someone is objectively bad and wrong, and we can judge them as so. And so you can understand people can be justified and cling to that identity and feel justified in really judging someone harshly. And and they and the people who have done wrong do uh, they'll uh, it, uh, karmically they think they will be punished even if they're not published punished by the judicial system. So I rest in peace knowing that that'll happen with or without my vitriol, you know, and 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 strong feelings. And that the huge thing comes there when you go into past lives, you find out the other sides of the story, and you find out an overwhelming amount of story and narrative. You know, they were they're definitely wrong in this life, but I, I balance it out by I did some wrong in, in, in another life. And then and so many shades of, uh, of of bad, good in the middle, and that complexity. And that all that does is uh make you challenge the idea that you really know what is right or wrong in the big picture. Oh yeah. I mean, I might actually say all healing is is being able to acknowledge that you don't fully understand yeah. and you never will you know, or you're never going to be certain about something, right? Like we're not to me, I'm, and this is my own personal view about what life is all about. If we're looking at life itself, which is that we're just doing a little better each time we're just learning and adapting to the new environment each time, and maybe even doing better the next time, isn't the right way to interpret it. Right. But we're just adapting yeah. and, um, and that we're just on an evolutionary path. And evolution means that there's never really fully an arrival. Yep. Um, we're just going to continue to shift and change the best we can with what we know. And that's it. So what is that uh, understanding in increasing levels of complexity? How does that then get someone to a therapeutic resolution? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of we're not looking for perfection, but things that are good enough. Life is cyclical. Life is going to throw us out of balance. So much of the work I'm, I'm doing is to help people understand that cycle and that they have then the tools um, with which to come back into a state of peace and neutrality as best they can yep. uh, based on where they are. And sometimes they will be much closer to it and more in attunement with it. And yep. other times it will be more challenging, but they know where that home base is and they're able to visit it and find it when needed. And it's an internal resource. It's not external. So it's free. It's available to them. And that is the skill we build and life is going to happen, right? It's supposed to, and that they can anticipate that without as much fear. Yep. Um, and, and that's it, you know, finding as much internal peace and navigation towards that home base. Yeah. I think peace is a key phrase for me. So I noticed particularly in past life regression when, and you know, when you are having the witnessing conscious, the inner wisdom coming through, uh, you're, you're then able to access a peace that passes understanding. So, so there's ultimate complexity, uh, means that you're not going to be able to consciously understand and, and judge things effectively. And so then you just, you can just not do that. And so and that, that, which is a form of forgiveness, uh, but, and also, uh, and letting go and, and choosing, uh, instead of, you know, attempting to shame others that does then create an inner suffering for oneself i think as you said just the the integrated family of it uh attempting to you know getting revenge i think there's a great cost paid and, and for no real benefit i think the, the and the idea that there's excessive action needed to be taken by us in order to get justice i think justice is a pretty uh you know uh, self uh regulating process particularly you know, if you if you believe in karma which I do, you know, uh, then, you know, it's something we can then, uh, you know, we can take the actions that we need to in order to fulfill our own life purpose, uh, but do so in a way with calm, clarity, confidence, and peace. So for me, oh, yeah. so for me, if we're acting in order to get justice in any way, which lacks clarity, as it's excessively judgmental or it lacks, uh, you know, emotional maturity and calm as it's, if it's excessively uh, punishing or shaming, I think they're all things just to notice that uh, for me, the progressives will always win, you know, like you've won, you know? So it's like, I've got to yeah. fight the conservatives that are saying past life regressions nonsense, that are saying it's unscientific. Uh, and so I don't need to fight them. Uh, we, we, it, like, the world will progress yeah. and, and people will have, a, a, spiritual awakenings will happen if people are not as far down the path and are judging and criticizing me for being a pseudoscience on Wikipedia. I don't mind, you know, yeah. and, and, and similarly for, for a lot of people, it's that understanding that, you know, you're going to win and smile while you're winning. Don't create excessive suffering for yourself. Uh, uh, that's unnecessary and harmful to yourself as you go along that path. Yeah. I mean, this is all an energy game. That's what living is. You know, yeah. when we look at why addictions exist, you know, why depression exists, what makes anxiety so unbearable? Yeah. It's all about just this constant overuse of energy. We're just there's so much output. We're trying to just find solutions to problems by doing things. And so much of what creating that observer position, releasing the need for judgment is really just releasing the body of having to do things to react 
Yeah. So the less we're reactive, the more we're conserving energy, the less we have to overwhelm our brain and body, which is a pretty fragile system I'm learning yeah. uh, to keep in balance. And so when we begin to realize that our primary task and our main locus of control is over our system and how we use our energy, then we begin to connect to what peace feels like. And then once we feel it, we don't want to give it back. Yeah. And it feels really damn good you yeah. know, to feel at peace within your system. It's where, right, our body is always seeking homeostasis. That is the way in which our biology is created. Yep. And it will do its best to come back into that place. And so, again, we're giving back into what life is itself. Yeah. And that's just saying, okay, there are many ways with which I can use my energy, but what's going to best serve me? Yeah. And, and I know it, it may be like, what? oh, well, you're not fighting the fight. You're not fighting injustice or, but anytime I hear the word fight, I'm really weary. <laughs> yeah. Um, because again, you, you, you ask the great question. Um, the evolutionary process is happening, whether we know it or not. Yeah. And things will find their way to be worked out. That's the beauty of life. Yeah. And we don't have to force things. Force actually creates its own problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's really important. Some really good points there, like doing versus being. So a lot of yes. social justice is things need to be done differently. And I need to make you do things differently. And yeah. which, which can create, which is forceful, and then can create a lot of pushback and a lot of pain on both sides. And what did it do? You went on to say, you know, you were talking about peace on the inside and, you know, for oneself. So not even selfishly, you know, yeah. be more focused on your own being than other people's doing. Feel that peace inside. And then what happens? Your inner peace can radiate out. And then what happens to those around you? They don't push back. They don't feel forced. They can be inspired. They can feel the peace and they can then be drawn up uh by you know your your inner being and peace so the consequence of it for their own personal health and for the and then it is ultimately then more effective in, in terms yeah. of the the outcomes that they want to get so i'm not saying don't be progressive you know let, be run over saying like do it in a really skillful way that expend that 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 is going to be more effective so that progressives do win or that progress wins and that becomes too political to call it progressives versus conservatives. But you know, spirit, it, spiritual evolution, evolution of consciousness and humanity will always, we're going to continue to evolve no matter what. Yeah, And, and the, the, the old will fall away and the new will come up. Yeah. And I think so much of what we're seeing is that we are in a time of that paradigm shift happening in yep. a really big way. And I think it's going to be inevitable that there will be resistance there will be people who will be shifting. There will be people stuck in the middle somewhere. You know, I kind of call us the bridge generation, at least here in the States, who are able to go through this healing process. We're kind of a bridge. Um, and I'm really excited, actually. Um, I think there's a reason why I chose this time to be here doing this work, because it's really hard to be on the cusp of something changing, a paradigm shifting um, yep. socially and, you know, globally. And, um, and yet there's also something really exciting to be witnessing it firsthand. You know, a lot of the people I'm working with, they're experiencing something for the very first time. It's like when people said, my granddaughter was the first to ever go to college, you yeah. know, um, 
my, my, my granddaughter is now the first person to ever be able to have her emotional system fully online and experience her true voice in the world, you know, and experience peace in her body. Like that's, that's the new thing. (laughs) Well, speaking of your true voice, great segue to, uh, we did mention at the top that you, uh, have, you previously were a classical singer. And you actually came into your education as a healer a little bit later in life. So how old were you when you started your your uh, psychology training, your master's degree? Yeah, I was 32. I started my social work uh, education. Prior to that, did you have an interest in psychology? Is it something that you wanted to do when you're sort of in, you know, 18 coming out of uh, high school? Or did you put it on the back burner? Or is it something that occurred to you, you know, as life went on? Yeah, I had no idea I wanted to do that. Though, um, I think one of my survival strategies was just really being a great listener. And so I built that skill really early. So, you know, always the confidant, someone who listened a lot. I didn't, I don't feel like I always gave great advice, but I tried. Um, yeah, so I had that going and, um, but singing was, is not so different from the work I do in some ways. Um, you know, there's this transaction of expression. There's this ability to invite people into a state of feeling and vulnerability um, that I've been singing since I was, you know, ever since I can remember and performing ever since I can remember. And um, I think one thing that always made my love of singing different than my colleagues when I did do it professionally was that I was obsessed with that transaction between me and the person listening and that energy between us and that dance of, I don't know. I don't even know if it has words, whatever that is. Well, I made some observations in that even when I teach hypnosis, which is the foundation of hypnotherapy and past life regression therapy, there's an element of performance, which is particularly when you're doing in-person uh, hypnosis, it, you are putting on a little bit of a stage show. You need to be an authority. You need to stand up on the stage and they're the audience and they need to follow along to your lead and you're the one delivering the performance. It also takes some courage. And I think a lot of people or in psychology, not particularly enthusiastic about hypnosis or hypnotherapy, particularly from the part where you have to do rapid inductions. You know, the, people are quite comfortable with, you know, sit down, close your eyes, follow your breath. But the, the, the kind of hypnosis level that I talk about involves inductions, handshakes, you know, quite, quite physically orientated stuff. And I think it takes courage for that. And people can then think, you know, what if it doesn't work? What if someone thinks that it wasn't, doesn't understand what hypnosis was? But the ultimate goal uh, for, and, and for, and as for music, it's a real performance. So I find quite a few of my students, they have a performing background and it really helps their, the way in which they can engage with, you know, the hypnosis. And it take, they have the, the, the courage to get on stage. They've demonstrated that and been trained to do that in their life. And ultimately, the goal in music is not to just do a clinically perfect set of notes. It's the feel, to get to people's subconscious mind, and, to, and, and which to me is where the emotions are, and to trigger emotions and have it a felt emotional response. And that's what good music does, and that's what good hypnosis does. And so, Yeah, yep, you just said it. You just said it. I mean, and to me that, that core of, can I invite you into a sincere moment with me? Will you accept my invitation? 
I can't force you. I can't make you, but I can lay the stage for you to come and rest and be. And then we can have this spontaneous moment together that will never occur again in the same way. And that it can have this meaning if we make it so. And then we can do it again, yeah. you know? Um, and then in that we build this relationship, that dance that continues on and on. I mean, um, I learned a lot about this through my psychoanalytic, my own psychoanalytic therapy and my own training. And it's really, you know, reminds me so much of singing uh, and performance and, and music. Things like uh, performing arts, like comedy or music, uh, for a lot of people, their go-to antidotes, I even notice in the comedy world, which I'm a bit of a fan of, podcasting has become so huge. And just the connection that young people have to not someone up on stage delivering a bunch of jokes, but really the, the podcasts give people a connection and feel that they have a friendship. And for those comedians to discuss anxiety, depression that they have makes a lot of people feel less alone. And so I think that's a, just such an interesting development. There's only in the last few years, really. It does seem these generations, people in their 20s, are a lot more attuned to it. So things like depression, overthinking, anxiety, are these the kind of uh, the big uh, issues that people are bringing to you? And, and how do you deal with that in a clinical way? Yeah, anxiety, depression, I think will always be the two big hitters, you know, in the generalized population. Okay. Um, and addictions. I think addictions are really rampant. So... Sorry, do it, and do addictions really flow out of or another way of dealing, attempting to deal with anxiety and depression instead yeah, so, of a therapeutic response? That's right. Um, they're antidotes. So they're ways in which our brain and body is trying to find regulation. Okay. Um, so when we do a compulsive behavior, our body feels a little bit of relief. And that relief, while temporary and external, is a way of just bringing the system back into a state of calm. A, 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 well, I say regulation, but it, it, you know, it gives you a little hit, a little dose of calm, yeah. enough to string you to the next time. Um, but anxiety, depression, addiction, compulsions, um, codependency, these are issues that I'm seeing on a pretty regular basis. And um, this generation is really cognizant that it doesn't feel good. It shouldn't be there. What's going on? They have the space and ability to look at it. Um, well, can, you, can you tell us a bit about how, like, even not, not a specific case, but just generalized cases? So maybe we'll do one at a time. So if you could talk, and so anxiety, what ex exactly does that mean? Is, is it social anxiety is the dominant one? or anxiety about the future, the state of the planet, climate, you know, all of the doom scrolling that that's happening. But what does anxiety mean? And what are you seeing in the general population How do you, that you work with? Yeah, lots of social anxiety. Um, COVID really amped up, I think, you know, global anxiety, uh, you know, that who knows what's going on, the, that fear of the unknown. And there's a wonderful book called Anxiety Rx. It's a doctor who talks a lot about what is anxiety. You know, anxiety is the mind trying to come up with a way to, you know, manipulate the external world. So if I do X, I'll be okay. Or don't do X, don't do Y, avoid X, avoid Y. Um, so it's our mind going into control freak out mode. Um, because our body inside our body is a state of fear and panic uh, and of, of the unknown and of uncertainty. And so if that comes back to, okay, so we have this part of us that has become 
overworked our mind, having to control every minute of our life <clears throat> because we don't have, we have a deficit skill, which is that we don't know how to manage anxiety and uncertainty. And so, you know, to me, anxiety is a wonderful opportunity for us to explore where did that deficit come from? When did you get the message that uncertainty wasn't manageable? Um, when did you see it modeled that you had to just control everything in order to survive? And again, then we get into EMDR, we get into, you know, the somatic work. Um, so do you yeah. find that anxiety has, has those kind of causes so you can go back to times and reprocess them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, Anxiety, because it feels like such a scattered, you know, you feel it all the time. It's such a generalized symptom yeah. that we have these fears that um, it just is who I am. But the IFS model and what I love about it so much is that when we begin to connect to our anxiety. Sorry, IFS uh, being internal family systems. That's right. Internal yeah. family systems, which is how we address our internal self. How do we connect to it and build a relationship with it? And internal family systems really surmises that our anxiety is not just this thing we do. It's actually a really sophisticated part within us that had a beginning point where, yeah, there is a healthy dose of anxiety to live in the world. Yep. But when does it go beyond that? And now we're using so much energy all the time and overwhelming our system. Yeah. So when we float into that part, we begin to connect with it more. We begin to get curious, that yeah. trigger word again. Um, then that part begins to reveal through that deep internal wisdom. Well, there were some really early experiences that caused me to go haywire because I was so small and helpless and no one was in control or, you know, there was severe neglect. There was abuse. There was painful events, you know, whatever we're going to find there, right? And then, sorry, are these all? Are these just typical experiences that anybody would have? You don't need to come from a broken home or have any particular traumas. This is just everybody would experience some sort of anxiety creating early childhood events, or yeah, I mean, I think that almost I would say most of most people would say, "Wow, I at some point have experienced anxiety that isn't appropriate." Yeah, <laughs> primarily because we are in this paradigm shift. Yeah. So, so that big part there is recognition. That's why some people might dismiss therapies is I'm feeling some sort of social anxiety and, and, but to the level where it's excessive, what would you tell people that feel that they've got excess anxiety? One is, you know, come and have sessions, but are there some guidelines for people with that kind of anxiety? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that it's probably not about what you think it's about. <laughs> You know, so wherever you're projecting your anxiety, whether that's, um, you know, does he like me or do I look okay? Or, you know, do I have enough of X or money or, you know, it's probably not about the presenting fear or concern where you're trying to find control. So that's what's happening here on the surface in the mind, right? So the racing thoughts constantly yep. going, this is just the mind's attempt to calm the feeling in the body. The feeling in the body is the fear, panic, uncertainty. And so that to me is really where the source is. And, you know, there are lots of really wonderful somatic techniques. Our mind is going to do anything and everything. If you have grown up with anxiety or you currently have anxiety, 
Um, it doesn't want to feel the feeling. Um, and so the primary goal is how can we give our mental attention to our body? Our body needs us to feel fear, panic, overwhelm in order to integrate. So in the way that we eat food, we ingest it, it goes into our stomach. We integrate the vitamins and minerals, and then we release what we don't need. It's the same with emotional experience. So if we're constantly trying to control how we feel, we're never going to let ourselves feel. And we desperately need to feel fear and panic, move through it, be able to notice why it's there, where in time it came from, integrate it, gain the wisdom and knowledge from it. So that way our mind can take a holiday and take a holiday. So once we've absorbed that information emotionally, our brain doesn't have to be working so hard. It could if we wanted it to, but it doesn't have to automatically all the time because we don't have the emotional skill to feel what we're feeling. So that would be the biggest and primary tool that I give clients in addition to the trauma work, which is how to build the skill of how to feel. Yeah, that's right. And that's moving, uh, that's moving away from addictions, which are a way of sort of suppressing uh, the feeling, but to, to recognizing the feeling, notice it's in excess and having the courage to face it and deal with it. Because if you don't deal with it, then it's sort of with you ongoing. But if you do face it and deal with it, you can be through it once and for all, and you can step into a, a new world without it. And that, which yeah. is really part of that conscious awakening. So you have to be conscious of that subtle level of excess anxiety and have the courage to, to deal with it uh, and awaken through to a new, a new healed way of being. Yeah. And it's not, you know, our bodies don't want to be constantly overworking. Right. When we really get to know these parts through the internal family systems model, the first thing I hear when we ask this part, what would you prefer to be doing? The yeah. part will always say, taking a break. <laughs> you know, we'll ask this part, are you tired? Yes, I'm exhausted. Um, our anxiety wants a break. Our depression wants a break. These parts, our addictive parts want to stop. There's no part of us that wants a break more than these exhausted parts of us. That, that's so, Yeah, that's really powerful because I think there's a little part of people's minds where they identify with their anxiety and they can't imagine a, a world without it and they don't necessarily think it's possible, so they wouldn't do it. And if they drop that, then they don't know who they are. And, and if you don't know who you are, you get afraid of not knowing that and you prefer to go back to the pathology and there's a comfort in your discomfort. Yeah. So do you, do you see things like that? And then, yeah, and... absolutely. I think this is why um, the type of work that I do, and you had asked about clinical approaches. I mean, this can really be, it's, it's a slow process. Yeah. Um, building self from the ground up in some instances, um, really helping people recognize that they even are capable of being a self and being a container to hold that until someone's ready to take ownership of it. This is, it's a really slow process and we're in a world that wants things fast. We've been um, convinced that it's, you know, these three simple little easy techniques to build a self. Um, and yet it really is a complicated process and yeah. helping people learn how to learn. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I think that's really interesting though. The idea that there's that, that an anxious overworking part wants a break. 
you know and so and and so it wants to not do certain things but then the next step step is it does want to do other things but and so so how do you could then go about uh you know creating a new way of being yeah well once the, you build a relationship with these parts of you that you've shamed or alienated for so many years um then they begin to reveal to you why they're doing the things they're doing and then once you begin to notice and understand wow they're doing these things for my system for a really important reason because they're doing their best to take care of me with the knowledge that they have um, there's an internal compassion that begins to build and then once that compassion is there compassion and curiosity is really those are the elements of change yep. and once there's compassion, curiosity, we can begin to imagine what would happen if we tried something new. So um, the pressure is off, right? Once the pressure comes off, then we can play. Yeah. So you're talking about them having good intentions. Do you find that what they're doing, though, despite that, well-intentioned, but is now out of date? Oh, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, so, anxiety... So yeah is just doing its best operating from a really early probably traumatized state yeah so essentially it's it's doing its best but uh, uh but it's it's really keeping you stuck in a past or anxiety worrying about the future so all of that is you know the an antidote antidotes to that are really being in the now you know which is mm -hmm. a lot of what meditation comes back to and so a lot of times even create you know creating a self sounds like quite a job in fact that may be part of a lot of people's issues <laughs> You know, and so for me, I find a lot of it is knowing what you're not. And yeah, so it, that's beautiful. I, I love yeah. that. I love that you're saying that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and so you don't have to create a statue of the self. You just have to chip away all the things that aren't that you thought were. And then what remains? Yeah, that's great. And, you know, so much of what I feel like the self is, is really always just flowing and changing. It's never static. I love that you said that it's not a statue because it's not. Yeah. It's tuning into whatever information is coming up in any given moment. And you have access to that information. And to me, that's yeah. kind of what the self is. It's free flowing. Well, as free of flowing information as you can in this moment to whatever's coming up. Yeah. And there's an infinite complexity into it to come back to that complexity you mentioned. And so the idea that you're going to be able to pin it down and so for me, then it becomes more like a, 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 a dance to be danced. And, and, and it's yeah. a being, not a doing. It's not a thing. Yes. It's a, it, is a, it is a being and it's an essence. It is, a, yeah, a, a, and there's a mystery to it that, that is allowable. You don't have to figure it all out. You're not going to be able to, but you can dance in the mystery of it with a piece that passes understanding, knowing that you're not going to be able to understand it all, but you can be at peace and healthy and healed with that. Does that make sense? Or is that absolutely? I mean, in fact, this is one of the things I've realized is complicated about a technique that I do with people is that sometimes we don't want to do anything, you know, we just we just need to be. Um, and and modeling that, feeling that, being in that uncomfortable, uneasy state, because so so often it's unfamiliar. Yeah. Um, how are we just with ourselves, the value of meditation, right? Or just hypnotherapy, that feeling of you can just notice things, um, building that skill. And what I found most of the time is that once we're able to access that state, the body regulates pretty quickly. 
um, it just boom, our body just finds its way back into a state of regulation. Um, just loves being. Right. Yeah. So, so what are the, you mentioned you go into a session with the presenting issue and outcomes you're wanting to get to. Uh, and then along the way you find causes, you deal with them. And so what are the kind of outcomes that you get and the principles that you learn along the way? Yeah. Um, a lot of the outcomes that we're looking for are what we call uh, like just generalized shifts. So people are no longer believing that they're unworthy or that they're not safe or that they don't belong or that they, you know, don't matter, you know, so there are kind of phrases, negative cognitions that may shift with intention over time, but in more subtle ways, a person's voice might change, you know, their body language will shift from session to session after an EMDR session that they found some resolution. Um, they're just, they don't have those racing thoughts as much. Um, while they still connect to that survival strategy, there's distance between that automatic kind of where they used to just do it. Now they have space to decide, do I want to do it? Do I not want to do it? Um, you know, oftentimes another thing I say is that they're starting to feel a lot of conflict in their external world because they're showing up differently. Um, you know, they're speaking out more about their needs. They're exploring their needs more. They're taking more time for themselves. Um, they're feeling more at peace in doing so. They're saying no more often. They're comfortable drawing boundaries more frequently. Um, you know, and then the next phase, <laughs> what that means, you know, they're going to shake up their life a little bit. So what would you say to people who have heard this and resonate with some of the issues, people who are wanting to, to work with that and how they could work with you? Yeah, well, first of all, if you're listening to this and it's resonating with you, um, resonance, right? So there's something in your brain and body that is saying this feels true for us. And that feeling that you're feeling right now, that is a motivating feeling. And I'll encourage you to just you know, uh, just go with it. There's a reason why it's resonating. Um, feel free to reach out to me, whether you're going to work with me directly or whether I can refer you to somebody in your area who does a similar style of work. EMDR, IFS, um, you know, maybe a particular form of work that I do is resonating with you. Um, then, you know, follow that, that feeling in your body. That is something that's saying now's the time. There's something we want to know more. That's that curious feeling. And um, I'm going to encourage you to just reach out. I may not have the right answer for you, but, um, you know, follow where that path leads. Okay. And do you work online with all of your modalities? I do work online with all my modalities. Um, I have an office here where I work in person for people who are here in New Jersey and close enough to come into the office but I've really found amazing work online. In fact, some people actually do better online. It really depends. So I'll encourage you, if you're afraid of working online on an online platform, um, give it a try, give it a go. You may actually be really surprised. Okay, and how can people contact you? You've got a listing on Psychology Today. You've got socials, websites. Yeah, you can contact me on so, uh, Psychology Today just by searching my name, Kendra Savage. Um, but you can also find my website, which is indigotherapy.net. And it has all my contact information, phone, email, 
Um, and I'll be happy. You can even text me. A lot of people text me. So that's perfectly fine too. If you don't want to call or email um, and yeah, answer any questions anyone has. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Mark. I had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for listening or watching. To find out more about my guest, see the links in the description for details. If you're interested in having personal sessions or certification training in hypnosis or hypnotherapy, or regression to this life, past lives, between lives, or spirit releasement therapy, then visit my website, thepastlifeawakeninginstitute.com for details. Thanks so much for watching or listening and see you next time.